from the book of Colossians. And uh, you'll remember that I attempted to um, title this series uh, The Christian Life in a Post-Christian Culture. And we were having discussion in our um, sermon discussion after church. And uh, we were talking about sometimes it's not a good idea to try to lump people into a group and uh, try to describe a group of people by lumping them in with one another. And I kind of got convicted that that's what I was doing with this title. I was lumping our culture, our whole culture, into saying we're a post-Christian culture. Um, And so I'm changing the title of my series. I'm changing the title of my series to The Christian Life in a Culture of Religious Pluralism. Um, A Culture of Religious Pluralism. So... What that means is we're not trying to label our culture. I'm trying to discover and describe for you an element within our culture that's an idea, and an idea that seems to be growing. And so now I have to define what I mean by religious pluralism. Um, It's not one group of people. It's a philosophical idea that is in our culture that challenges the claims of Christianity. Where they say that Christianity is not the only idea about God. It is one in many ideas about God. So when you think of the word plural, that means many. When you think of the word singular, that means one. And so my idea and suggestion is taken from those who study culture have really identified that within our culture there is a movement that says there are many religions. There are many ways to God. No one single religion or religious figure, according to American pluralism, can claim to be the one for all people, in all places, and in all times. Religious pluralism in America says there are many religions and many religious figures that are valid. So when it comes to religious faith in America, we don't think of singular. America thinks of plural, many, religious pluralism. And each of these ideas has a champion. You might think the champion of Hinduism is Gandhi. Or the champion of Buddhism is Dalai Lama. Or you might think the champion of Islam is Muhammad. Transcendental meditation and the Baha'i and Taoism. They have various champions, Sikh gurus or Krishna, who, by the way, may or may not have ever existed. New Age practitioners are championed by mediums and psychics and spirit guides and proponents of feng shui, which is something that has been sweeping our nation recently. These are just a few of the entries into the pool of pluralism and religious life in America. Here's what's curious about American religious pluralism. And that is that in America, this 
Pluralism says that no one religion or one religious champion is deemed superior to others. Rather, they are all worthy of one's allegiance. Just pick one. Be committed to him or her. And listen and abide by their message. And show respect for all. In fact, give them all a try. See if there might be an element in this one, and an element in this one, and an element in this one that you like, and then put them all together, form your own. That's what a religious pluralism in America says. It's been said that 70% of Americans, 70% of Americans, believe that there are many religions and many religious champions that will lead people to God. That's a powerful movement within our culture. So where does Jesus fit in this religious pluralism of America? Well, as one might expect, Christianity is welcomed into the fray as one of the alternatives. And Jesus is even acknowledged as a savior. He's even acknowledged as a true savior, but he's not the only savior. The reason I give this brief overview of American pluralism is because these ideas are not new. They were around when Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians. You remember that the Colossians lived in the Roman Empire. And the Roman culture back in the first century was definitely filled with religious pluralism. The Romans had hundreds of gods, one of whom was the emperor. And you remember on Paul's missionary journeys, when he went into a town, there would be a religious temple. In Ephesus, it was the religious temple of the goddess Diana, which was run around a meteorite that came down and was shaped in the form of a woman. And so they worshipped that meteorite as a goddess. And they built a temple which was one of the seven wonders of the world. Other times on Paul's missionary journey, one time he was building a fire on the shoreline and a snake came up and attached itself to his hand and he just throwed it off and everyone was waiting for him to die. And when he didn't, they brought the religious leaders and wanted to worship him as God. Other times that when they were on their journeys, they were equated to Hermes, the god of of, uh Rhetoric and Zeus, the god of power. This idea of religious pluralism was all around and Paul wrote to a church that was living in the middle of this religious pluralism of the Roman Empire. And I would suggest to you that this is comparable to what we are facing today in our American culture. And so as we look at the text of Colossians chapter 1, Paul gives the Colossians his advice or his admonition on how do we live within this religious pluralism. Christianity is not one of the many. Christianity and our Christian champion Jesus are set apart from all others. And here's the key point. Christianity does not follow a champion who merely teaches a philosophical set of ideas that he discovered. 
That's what Buddha did. He discovered the principles and then he followed them and became an example of how to follow them. Muhammad discovered uh, the principles of Allah. He maintains that Allah inspired him to write the Quran and then he began to follow them. Jesus is different from that. Jesus did not discover principles to follow. He did not discover how to please God. As we've been singing, Jesus is God. Totally set apart. Jesus did not follow and serve God, although he did his father. He is God. And so therefore, I propose to you this thought as we look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Jesus, the supreme Christian champion, is none other than the one and only true God. And if you have time this week and you want to refer to what the Bible says about Jesus, I've given you a short summary in your insert on the back of your sermon notes. And you can look up those passages which give a portrait of what the Bible says about Jesus. But as we look at that biblical information, we'll find out that Jesus is not one of many. He is the one and only. And that's what Colossians 1 says. So let's look at the text. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So that's why I title this message, The Supremacy of Jesus, the Supreme Christian Champion. Notice how Paul categorically sets Jesus apart. All, every. They occur six times in these few verses, saying that he encompasses everything. He has exclusive role, one that no one else could ever occupy. Look at verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Genesis teaches us that humanity is created according to or after or in the image of God. This means that there are characteristics of God found in all of us. We have personhood, like God does. Thoughts, emotions, volition. We have characteristics that God has of creativity, morality, self-awareness. These are all things that humans share with God that sets us apart from animals and plants. But Jesus is not made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. He's the image of the invisible God. Think of it this way. 
Let's say that the invisible God stands before a mirror. And this mirror somehow magically transforms the image of the invisible God into Jesus. That's what this means. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as though God would stand in front of a mirror and Jesus would appear. Jesus is God. Only one who is could appear as the image. And that's how Paul describes Jesus. The result, verse 18, in everything, everything, he might have the supremacy. So he is the Christian champion, the supreme Christian champion. He is the one and only true God. That's the premise of how Paul tells us, listen, as you are living in a religiously pluralistic culture, make sure you maintain the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He has supremacy over everything. He is the one and only God. So I'd like to talk about his supremacy in two categories today. First, his supremacy over creation, verses 15 to 17. And secondly, his supremacy over the new creation, the local church. So let's look at each one of those in a little bit, a little while. First, I'm going to talk about his supreme over creation. Verse 18 tells us Jesus is supreme over creation in that he is in authority over creation. That's found in verse 18 where it says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Jesus exercises his influence, his governance, his stamp on everything that happens over creation. He's not equal to creation as if he were created. Firstborn doesn't mean that he was the first one created as some uh, non-Christian Greek uh, systems say. Rather, he is over creation in authority. He is firstborn, that preposition over sets this context very clearly. And it's consistent with what we see in Psalm 89. Look at what Psalm 89 says about David. It says, My faithful love will be with him, and through my name his his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my Savior, and I will appoint him to be my firstborn the most exalted of the kings of the earth. That's what God says about David. Now, was David the firstborn in his family? Actually, he was the youngest in his family. So this idea of firstborn doesn't talk about he is the first person born. It means that he has the authority of the firstborn. And so Jesus, even though he wasn't born, he was God. He's been God from the very beginning. From the very beginning with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he is God. But in the creation, he invaded creation in the person of Jesus Christ. And as such, he is given authority 
over creation. He is the Lord of all creation. Secondly, not only is he supreme over creation in authority, he is supreme over creation in activity. Because the Bible says he actually created it. That's what verse 18 tells us. Um, In him were all things created. Through him were all things created. For him were all things created. He stands at the beginning of creation. He stands at the end of creation. All matter reveals his glory. All matter and physical activity will reveal his glory. Sometimes I I get concerned about our political process in the United States. And I wonder, oh no, what's going to happen to our country? And then I'm reminded, all beings will bow before Jesus in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In activity, he created and he stands over in authority. Third, in priority, he is before all things. This phrase refers to his existence before time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he is supreme in authority, he is supreme in activity, he is supreme in priority, and finally he is supreme in consistent uh, continuity, which means he holds all things together. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle an atom. Without him, gravity would not hold us to the earth. Without him, the planets would not hold their orbits. Without him, nothing would exist. Everything would explode and degenerate and cease to be. So when we contemplate anything physical, whether it's matter or time or weather, Jesus is supreme. Whether we contemplate anything moral, matters of justice or creativity or love and charity, Jesus is supreme. He is preeminent over creation in authority, activity, priority, and continuity. Jesus is the one and only true God. That's the portrait that Paul says, this is how you maintain your your ideas about Jesus in a pluralistic culture. It's our responsibility, indeed our privilege, to say, Now, Jesus is not one of many. He's the one and only God. Then Paul tells us that not only is he supreme over creation, he's also supreme over the new creation, the church. Verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. The church. The body of Jesus. There is an element of spirituality and mysticism in Christianity, and that is because the body of Christ of all ages is referred to here. 
we are thinking of our brothers and sisters who lived a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, four hundred years ago, a thousand years ago. The hymn says, elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. His charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. Yet she, church, on earth hath union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. See, we are united with Christ because he is the head. He's the governing leader of the body. And just as he is controlling and has authority over the physical, so does he have authority over the spiritual. And as we talked last week, when Jesus gives us marching orders and says, this is the way, walk in it, what do we do? We walk in it. (laughs) Sometimes it's not easy to do that. Sometimes there's a price to pay when we do that. But when Jesus says, walk this way, we don't walk that way, we walk This way. Because he is the head of the church. Two ways that Paul describes Jesus' relationship with the church. First, he is the foundation. We sang about that. Jesus, we will build our lives on his foundation. He is the beginning. Before Jesus, there was no church. There was a beginning. There was theocracy with the people of God, Israel, where God would speak directly to his servant and give direction to the people of Israel. And then there was monarchy when God raised up kings. And so he spoke to the king, and the king would lead the people. But after the monarchy failed, in came Jesus, the divine king, the new monarchy. And as one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the ruler. No one rules him. He is the head. As one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus then rules his people. And he has given the office of supreme ruler to those uh, that he has. He is the one who has the office of supreme ruler over the local church. He's the king. He will never change his leadership. He's the, we sang about this, the cornerstone. He is the foundation of the church. So that brings up a question. Well, then, why does the church have problems? <laughs> why, why does the church struggle? Why, why do we sometimes run into issues that are difficult and hard? Well, Jesus has invited sinful people not only to be part of his church, but also to lead his church. And while we do our very best to live on his foundation, to follow in his ways, there will be times when we fall short. But what is our heart? If our heart is to acknowledge Jesus as the one and only true God who indeed has the right to be our head, then we come back to him and receive his grace. If we need to, to turn our direction, come back to him and be renewed in our walk with him. But as long as we stay on that foundation, we will more than survive. We will 
thrive. That's the good news of the gospel. But not only is he the foundation of the church, he's the fulfillment of the church, which says that he is the firstborn from among the dead. Now notice the prepositions here again, from among the dead. So that phrase firstborn, here it means something different from authority. Here it's talking about the resurrection. There were several people whose stories we are told in the Bible who were raised from the dead, but they all died again. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he will never die again. He is the firstborn from the dead to give an eternal resurrection. Now, what does it mean to be first? Well, if you're in a contest and you come in first, that means that there are others in the contest who... who who follow after the one who's first, right? If there were not others in the contest, you would not finish first, you'd just finish. But Paul says Jesus finished first, which means there are others who are going to follow. And those others who are going to follow are you and me, those in the church who placed our faith and trust in Jesus. And we have the assurance that as he was raised from the dead, as we are in him, we too will be raised from the dead. And we were reminded of that again in our worship time. Therefore, his resurrection was not simply for him. It is the guarantee that those who place their faith in him will also be resurrected. By the way, Buddha died and the remains of his decomposed body are still in the grave. Muhammad died his decomposed remains are still in the grave. And Jesus died too. His body did not decompose. And his body is not in the grave. He is beyond the grave. He rose from the dead. And he gives us that same promise that we will have that same resurrection. So in a culture of religious pluralism, what do we do? Well, we don't become arrogant judges. We don't become people that speak down to people in a condescending way. We simply present Jesus as who he is. Gently, lovingly, but with our finger on the text, maintaining the truth that Jesus is our supreme champion, the one and only true God. That's how we live in an American, religiously, pluralistic culture. Well, I want to leave you today with an inspirational video from uh, Dr. S.M. Lockridge, who was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego from 1953 until 1993. And Dr. Lockridge is known for a sermon called, He's My King. Maybe some of you know of this. But YouTube has put together a pretty creative presentation, and this is just inspirational. And I want to leave you with it this morning. Let's listen to Dr. S.M. Lockridge and the excerpt of his sermon, He is My King. I wonder if you know him. 
Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, no barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his soulless supply. Well, he's enduringly strong. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially much. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's preeminent. Well, he's the longest idea in literature. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. Do you know him? Do you know my king? Well, my king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a gateway of glory. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do you know him? Well, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm proud to tell you, the heavens of heaven cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand but they found out they couldn't stop it. Pilate couldn't find any fault in it. The witnesses couldn't get their testimony to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been. And he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor. And he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You paid him, teach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Yeah. Do you know him? He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. 
He's the leader of the legislature. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of Lords. That's my king. question is, do you know him? Do you know him? You can know him simply by trusting and receiving his grace and believing. I'd like to bow in prayer and maybe there's someone here today who might say, I don't know if I know him. It's not hard. Bow your hearts in prayer and say, Lord, I trust in you and I want you to be my king. Lord Jesus, we've heard a portrait of you, and you are indescribable. But yet, you revealed yourself to us, and you came to pay the penalty for our sins and to give us new life. Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner, and I turn from my sin, and I receive your grace and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to be my king. And if you prayed that prayer today, you are now part of the body of Christ.